1: Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. In the 1970s, Contra Costa County in California had several serial killers, including Joseph James D'Angelo, otherwise known as the East Area Rapist or the original Night Stalker. For all the crimes he committed, though, He was just one of at least four serial killers preying on victims in this area. Today, you'll hear about one of the other serial killers in that area. Okay, on to the show. On November 14th, 1972... 19-year-old Maureen Field ended her shift at the Pleasant Hill Kmart and was supposed to get a ride home from her father. However, by the time he arrived from their home in nearby Moraga, she had already accepted a ride from someone else. Initially, the family was not too concerned, as Maureen had left home twice before without telling her parents, staying away for nearly a month each time. However, in the past, she had stayed in contact with her younger sister, Loretta, but Loretta did not hear from Maureen this time. Adding to the growing panic, two days after she went missing, the family received a phone call from an unidentified man who said, I'm calling about your daughter. She is dead, and I killed her. A friend of Maureen's cautioned police that it might have been a prank caller who made the call at Maureen's request. However, Maureen had told a coworker the day she disappeared that a man had been demanding Maureen to date him. Maureen had described the man as around 27 years old, medium height, with black hair and a mustache. At the time, Maureen was one of three girls missing from the area. On December 1, 1969, Elaine Davis of Walnut Creek went shopping with her mother. Her mother dropped Elaine off at home and left to pick up Elaine’s father. By the time her parents had returned home, Elaine had disappeared. She had apparently been kidnapped through a rear sliding glass window. Elaine's three-year-old sister cried and told their mother. They took her, and she didn't want to go. The next day, a hitchhiker came forward and told police he had been picked up the night before, and there was a young blonde girl in the back seat, crying. The driver dropped the hitchhiker off at a gas station and sped off. Two days later, her shoe was found near Danville, and her coat was later found near Santa Cruz. On December 19, 1969, a body was found floating off Lighthouse Point near Santa Cruz. At the time, investigators identified the body as being 20 to 25 years old, but in 2000, a Walnut Creek detective reviewed Elaine's disappearance in comparison with unidentified bodies in the area. The detective learned of the body recovered from Lighthouse Point and was able to exhume the unidentified remains. A forensic anthropologist was able to identify it as Elaine Davis. On March 3, 1970, 15-year-old Cassette Ellison was seen getting off the bus after school. The bus driver, Georgie, told investigators he had escorted Cassette across the road to their gate and, as he was leaving, saw a truck parked nearby. There was a man sitting inside the truck. When George came back by the house, the truck had been moved closer to the house, but the man was no longer in it, and George did not see Cassette either. Another teenage girl was abducted in December 1969. Leona Roberts, who was between 16 and 17 years old, was abducted from her boyfriend's apartment on December 10, 1969. An upstairs neighbor heard a girl scream, so they contacted the sheriff's department. When Leona's boyfriend arrived home, the Christmas tree was knocked over and Leona was nowhere to be found. The neighbor said she saw a white male with blonde hair standing near a station wagon around the same time she heard the screams. On December 28, 1969, a man searching for driftwood at Bellinas Lagoon in Marin County found the body of a nude white female. The body was identified as Leona, and her cause of death was an unknown viral infection. She had ligature marks and had also been choked, which the coroner said could have been related to the virus. Many Zodiac Killer researchers believe Leona could be a victim of the Zodiac. But of course, we may never know. On February 15, 1973, a decomposing body was found on Morgan Territory Road, The body was so badly decomposed it was hard to determine if the victim was male or female. There were scraps of clothing around the body which was determined to be female. A week later, the identity of the body was determined to be that of Maureen Field. Her cause of death was initially determined to be foul play. It was later established that Maureen had been stabbed over 40 times. On January 26, 1974, Lisa Ann Beery took a $30 check to the bank. She had earned the money babysitting. When she completed her errand, she was supposed to meet her father to go sailing. She was last seen hitchhiking down Ascot Drive in Oakland, California. Although her family searched for her, and there were no leads or traces of Lisa, they believed she was still alive and a member of a religious cult for several years. Three months after her disappearance, her grandmother passed away and left her $200,000. The family held it in a trust for Lisa, believing she would show up when she turned 18 and claim the money. On March 19, 1975, someone broke into the Walnut Creek home of Leticia Fago, a 25-year-old employee of the French Bank in San Francisco. When she did not report to work, her manager became concerned and phoned the police. Letitia was found nude on her bed in the home she shared with her husband, who was out of town on a work trip. The cases floundered for a while until July 11, 1979, when the Oakland Police Department was contacted by someone stating they had information about some of their unsolved cases. The information was through a friend who was frightened to contact police. The next day, July 12th, Suzanne Perrin met Homicide Sergeant Alex Smith at a Fremont restaurant. Suzanne was married to Philip Hughes, a former professional bowler, a sometimes burglar, and a janitor at Concord Bank. Suzanne had quite an interesting story to tell. Suzanne and Phil began living together in 1972, shortly after he broke up with Kathy Carson. They lived in a small room in a house where they shared the bathroom and kitchen with a landlady. On November 16, 1972, Phil came home wearing bloody clothes and told Suzanne he had been involved in a murder and wanted to move the body. Phil told her that he had been driving home when he saw a man chasing a naked woman who was holding her clothing to her chest. Phil said he had stopped to assist the woman when he saw the two run into a gully When he reached the woman, the man ran away, and Phil tried to offer assistance to the young woman, who had been stabbed multiple times. He decided that the young woman was going to die anyway from her stab wounds. So, he strangled her to death to relieve her pain. Phil was worried about the body, particularly with his past record. So, asked Suzanne for ideas on where to hide the body. Suzanne suggested Morgan Territory Road and went with Phil to the gully where they loaded the body in the back of Suzanne's Fiat. The pair dumped the body, later identified as Maureen Field. They threw her clothes after her, but Phil kept her purse. She then told Sergeant Smith what happened in 1974 while she was dating Phil and house-sitting for a friend in Oakland. On January 26, 1974, She and Phil picked up a hitchhiker close to the Warren Freeway. At knife point, Phil took the girl to the house where Suzanne was house-sitting. Once they arrived at the home, Phil took the girl downstairs where he sexually assaulted her, then stabbed her to death. Suzanne was upstairs with the family dogs pacing. Phil called up to her and she went to the basement, where she found him naked and bloody. The victim later identified as Lisa Beery, was wrapped in sheets in a sleeping bag and put in the trunk of Suzanne's Fiat sedan. She drove around with the body in her car for two or three days. Phil asked Suzanne for suggestions for other potential victims who resembled his ex-girlfriend. She provided him with the names of some of her co-workers at the bank where she worked. One of these was Letitia Fago, who had also told Suzanne her husband was going to be out of town on the day that she was murdered. Two of her other co-workers had been passed over because they lived too far away. Phil Hughes was arrested on July 13, 1979. Officers approached him as he was leaving work and told him he was under arrest. He asked for what, and they explained for the murder of Lisa and Beery. Phil was extremely calm and didn't say anything after that. Over the weekend after Suzanne met with Sergeant Smith, she led them to a grassy hill, believing it was where they had dumped Lisa Beery. On Wednesday, July 17, 1979, investigators searched a one-acre area in the Ream Valley near Moraga, using shovel and picks. Nothing was found, so a bulldozer was called in. Her remains were found in Ream Valley later that week. When police searched the home of Phil Hughes and Suzanne Perrin, they recovered property belonging to Maureen and Letitia. The property belonging to Letitia was a diamond, which Phil had given to Suzanne. Maureen's purse and identification were found in Phil's car, seven years after she had been murdered. Suzanne told police that Phil had abused her for several years. She said he had forced strangulation sex on her at least 230 times. Before they had sex in this manner, she would apply deep red lipstick to please him, then would subject to being choked until the blood vessels in her eyes broke. She kept the information about the murders to herself for years, because, she says, she was afraid of him and felt programmed by him. She had been nearly drowned by him on several occasions as part of his sexual fantasies. One time, he fashioned a noose out of her nightgown and hung her from a closet rod. Another time, he spent three days taking Polaroids of her in various simulated death scenes. He poured ketchup on her to look like blood and also bought her a special padded bra so he could stab her in the chest without actually inflicting bodily damage. Suzanne later testified that Phil had proposed to her just two days after another girl turned him down. Phil also had Suzanne regularly purchase pornographic and trashy detective magazines. He told her he read them to learn various ways to kill people. Phil and Suzanne shared a home with two other women, They had seven horses and goats, and their home was out of place among the other well-kept homes in the area. In the unkempt front yard, piles of computer paper were scattered about, a broken-down horse trailer grew in the weeds, and a bag of multiple bowling balls sat forgotten. One of the roommates was questioned, and she described Phil as outgoing. However, when questioned about potential abuse he subjected Suzanne to, She refused to answer, saying, I don't want to get into that. The neighbor behind them described Phil as sullen and said the only contact she really had with any of the residents was if their goats got out and came onto her property. She often drove them back into the fence by throwing rocks at them and would ask Phil to fix the fence, but he never did. Suzanne was asked why she came forward after so many years Shortly before speaking with the police, she had started dating a man she trusted enough to tell about the murders. Her boyfriend convinced her to talk to a friend of his who was a detective. However, many years later, Maureen Field's brother, Joseph, scornfully said Suzanne only came forward because she was jealous of how attached Phil was becoming to his victims. Indeed, not long before Suzanne was involved in a new relationship, a new woman had entered Phil's life and the couple's bed. Suzanne called this new woman Holly, a second wife. She had complained to Phil, who brushed her off, saying that if he broke off the relationship with Holly before the end of five years, Holly would be one of his victims. He even had a plan to break into the office where Holly was a night janitor, kill her and steal a few items to make it appear to be a burglary gone bad. After Phil was arrested, Suzanne told Holly she thought she would have been his next victim. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? Trust me, I have been there and I still struggle with these issues. But BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you like it's been there for me. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment, which is so convenient for me, and it really makes me feel comfortable. You can now get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you need to. They have licensed professional counselors who are specialized in LGBTQ matters, grief, self-esteem, trauma, relationships, anxiety, you name it. Anything you share with them is confidential. And if you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. They have over 3,000 US licensed therapists across all 50 states and they're available worldwide. Start communicating in under 24 hours. The best thing is it's secure, convenient, professional, affordable, and it's not a crisis line. Best of all, like I said, it's a truly affordable option. True Crime Fan Club podcast listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code TCFC. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com TCFC. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com TCFC to get 10% off your first month. Today's episode is brought to you by Beekeepers Naturals. Beekeepers is on a mission to reinvent your medicine cabinet with clean remedies that actually work. You and your family deserve to feel your best all day, every day. Which is why Beekeepers Naturals creates clean, science-backed remedies that naturally support your daily health. Like Bee Soothed Cough Syrup, the truly clean cough syrup that helps you get back on your feet. I try as much as possible to keep my voice healthy by using Bee Soothe for throat and immunity support. And the flavor is so much better than your standard cough syrup. It's naturally powered by nature's most powerful immune supporters. Pure buckwheat honey, elderberry, chaga mushroom, bee propolis, and olive leaf extract. But Bee Soothe Cough Syrup isn't the only beekeeper's product I love. My family is obsessed with Bee Elixir Brain Fuel. It helps to naturally beat brain fog, find your flow, and deliver your A-game. We all take one shot first thing in the morning to stay energized, on task, and focused all day. So, are you ready to upgrade your medicine cabinet? This amazing cough syrup always sells out quickly. So, don't delay. Get yours today. Check out Beekeeper's Naturals to try Bee Soothe Cough Syrup and discover other clean remedies your family will love. You can save 15% on your first order today by going to beekeepernaturals.com/truecrime. That's B E E K E E P E R S N A T U R A L S.com/T R U E C R I M E to get 15% off. Meet your new medicine cabinet with Beekeeper's Naturals. <music> During the arraignment for Lisa Beery's murder, the charges of kidnapping and rape against Phil were dropped due to the statute of limitations. Phil's public defender, James McWilliams, said he was not prepared to enter a plea. Therefore, Judge Roderick Duncan submitted a court-entered plea of not guilty. The trial for Lisa's murder was held in Alameda County since she was killed in Oakland. The other two cases were from Contra Costa County, Phil went to trial for Lisa's murder first in April 1980. A very surprising witness appeared during the trial, Phil Hughes's mother, Stella Hughes. Stella appeared on the stand wearing dark glasses and was only in the courtroom for 20 minutes. She testified that Phil had always been a problem child and when he was four, began throwing little birds and mice over the fence into a neighbor's pool. She said when he was eight, His father found him dressed in women's clothing. They began taking him to a psychiatrist in an attempt to help his psychological issues. Kathy Carson, Phil's ex-girlfriend, testified as well. She told jurors Phil had been confident he could talk his way out of his criminal acts by showing he was not responsible for his actions. Phil also thought he would make a great psychiatrist. Like his ex-wife, Kathy had been subjected to sex strangulation, which often left her unconscious or bleeding from her ears. Kathy said she was terrified, but she stayed with him because she loved him. Phil told her these actions were the result of LSD flashbacks. The state rested their case on a luminous photograph in the shape of Lisa Beery's torso. An Oakland police criminalist went to the location in the Montclair home where Suzanne said Lisa's body had been. Spraying luminol on the surface, she created a distinct outline of Lisa's torso. The jury found Phil Hughes guilty of first-degree murder in the Lisa Beery trial. Afterwards, a sanity hearing was held. A Walnut Creek, California psychiatrist testified to jurors that Phil Hughes had admitted to the killings. Phil told him that they were a form of therapy to help himself untangle his macabre hang-ups. The doctor also explained to jurors that Phil Hughes was a necrophiliac who would kill his victims, then rape them. This was the only way he could climax. Dr. Hugh Winnig testified that not only was Phil Hughes a necrophiliac, his fetish was even worse because he had the compulsion to kill his victims himself then have sex with them. Phil told Dr. Winnig, I would get totally involved during the violent attacks on my wife or the murder victims. The cool part of me disappeared. I kept on doing it to see why the cool part went away. You could almost say that those killings were therapeutic. Despite these conversations, the psychiatrist said Phil was not legally insane because Phil went to extremes to keep from being found out, which suggests that he was aware of the criminality and illegality of the crimes. The defense's specialist, Dr. Karen Gutiksen, disagreed. She believed Phil was overwhelmed by delusional thinking at the time he murdered Lisa. She said in Phil's garbled, crazy way of thinking, Phil probably said the acts were wrong, but didn't believe it. The jury deliberated for one hour and 15 minutes before deciding that Phil Hughes was sane. He was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. After his sentencing, Phil gave a statement. He said he remembered enough of the murder to know that, quote, I am responsible for her death. However, he told probation officials he had no knowledge of why he killed Lisa. Quote, If I was aware of the why in 1974, the killing would never have happened. He continued by saying, The best way I can say is that due to severe emotional stress, I behaved in an erratic and uncontrolled manner at times, and it was during such a time that the killing of the Beery Girl took place. He rationalized his actions by saying that his biggest problem in 1974 was My inability to make a choice between two women, who I loved, or at least I thought I did. I could not seem to resolve my problem, and the stress became so great that I began to strangle each one of them in attacks which were unprovoked. Of Lisa Beery, he also said, I did not know the girl who was killed, and I am sure that she was a completely innocent victim of whatever I was at the time. It was never my intention to hurt the girl, at least consciously. I have been totally a person who can't stand to see anyone hurt. The prosecutor told the judge, Hughes is one of the most dangerous persons to ever be convicted of murder in Alameda County. He believed Phil was responsible for more than the three killings that he was charged with. The prosecutor told the state board of prison terms never to parole Phil although he was eligible seven years after his sentencing. The prosecutor said, Philip Hughes is a cold-blooded, vicious killer who will always be a threat to human life, and he should never be released from prison. However, the defense said he was controlled by pressures that confused his mind and reason. They further said Phil Hughes was not a cold-blooded killer. The judge sentenced Phil to life, not only for the crime, but also for the anxiety, suffering, and sorrow he had caused throughout his life. The trial for the murders of Maureen Field and Letitia Fago were held in October 1980. Much of the same information was provided. Psychologists said that Phil had mutilated dolls when he was eight years old, stuck pins and bugs, and then as a teenager, acted out death scenes. After several weeks of testimony, closing arguments took place. The district attorney said the murders of Maureen and Leticia were textbook examples of first-degree murder. He told the jury, if you can live with a verdict of manslaughter in a case such as this with these facts, then no man anywhere, any place, has been guilty of murder. He reminded them of the details of Leticia's murder and also that Phil actively hunted victims. Defense attorneys pointed to Phil's mental problems stating Phil Hughes was in a state of dissociation when the murders took place, the defense said of the psychologist. They said he didn't know the difference between life and death, didn't know if he was alive, had a total inability of expressing feelings, and thought that when you die, your body assumes another form or body. The district attorney rebuked this line of thought, saying no one could know for certain If Phil was in a state of diminished capacity or not, and even if he was, no one could say it was 50% or 90%, citing there was no scientific method to this. The jury began deliberations which took two and a half days to complete. In the end, they dismissed the defense experts that Phil Hughes was insane and found him guilty of two counts of first degree murder. Jurors were then tasked with determining if Phil was legally sane or not. After two hours of deliberation, the Contra Costa jury followed the Alameda County jury and determined Phil Hughes to be sane. He was then given two additional sentences of life imprisonment. The jury foreman said Dr. Winnig was most influential because he was better prepared than any other of the mental health experts. Unfortunately, Phil Hughes became eligible for parole in 1985. However, the parole board did not release him, and as of this date, he is still in prison for his crimes. At the time of the murders, the death penalty was not available. So he could not receive it for these crimes, like many other serial killers did in California. Suzanne Perrin was granted immunity for her crimes. This was a sticking point with Maureen Fields' family, who felt she should have been charged as well. Her brother Joseph said Maureen was cool and fun. Phil Hughes was a neighbor of the Fields' family. Before he killed her, Maureen said a prayer of contrition, giving her family peace she had turned to her faith in the face of death. Not as much is known about the other two victims, Letitia Fago had moved to Walnut Creek to get away from the crime of the city. Lisa Beery was an honor student. Paul Holes, a criminalist who helped solve the East Area Rapist slash Golden State Killer case, believes Phil Hughes was involved in more than these three murders. While trying to prove this, one of the unsolved cases, Cynthia Waxman, was linked to another serial killer from the area, Charles Jackson. Phil Hughes remains a person of interest in several other unsolved killings from the time, including Cossette Ellison. Many online detectives believe Elaine Davis was a victim of the Zodiac. Perhaps these unsolved Contra Costa cases are close to being solved with the technology that's now available, in addition to the recent break in the Zodiac case. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod, and of course, our website, is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was written and researched by Susie St. John, content editing by Brittany Martinez, produced by the best in the business, Nico at we Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at we Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com.